it is really great uh, to be back with you. Um, and greetings from Wexford and from the church in Wexford. If you'd like to, to turn in your Bibles, if you haven't turned there already, um, to the passage in Colossians, uh, we're actually going to look at uh, just the, the last section that was read um, from verse 24 to 27. Um, but from verse 15, it kind of gives it the context. Um, so from verse 24 to 27. Let me just pray for us again as, as we come to, to God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that we can bow before it, that we can uh, hear you speak through it. And I pray that you would uh, speak to us this morning um, and that you would uh, be in, uh, in, in this talk and that, that, that we would understand more of what you want us to, to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as, as a church, we've, we've kind of been working our way through Colossians, um, and I guess as we did that, I was particularly struck by um, Paul's vision um, of the new humanity that he talks about in, in the letter. Um, in chapter 3 and verse 11, he talks about there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And, and we know from, from chapter 4 um, that this letter was being uh, delivered to Colossae uh, by two men, by Tychicus and Onesimus. And Onesimus was a runaway slave. He was now returning to Colossae, um, and most likely he was bringing with him that other little letter in the New Testament, Philemon. Paul's letter to his former master, exhorting the master um, to receive Onesimus back as a fellow believer. Not as a slave, but as a, as a fellow believer. And so what you find in the letter is just this radical community of equals in Christ, unheard of in the ancient world. Um, that's one of the themes that particularly struck me as, as we went through it as a church. But one of the other themes, um, which is what we're looking at this morning in these verses 24 to 27, is just Paul's whole attitude towards suffering. Um, what, what it means as a Christian to suffer and what our attitude ought to be towards suffering. Paul is in prison as he writes this letter. We know that from chapter 4, verse 18. He says, remember my chains. And he's writing to them as a young church that was established by Epaphras, who most likely became a Christian through him and then went back um, to Colossae. And he's written to them in chapter 1. At the beginning part, he reminds them of the gospel. He reminds them of the supremacy of Christ, as we heard read. Um, and then we get to these verses from verse 24, where we just see that, that window that gives us just, just a window on his attitude to, towards suffering. I wonder, I wonder how much or if you've suffered much as a Christian. Um, given where you live, um, perhaps not so much in terms of a physical sense. There are parts of the world um, where that suffering would be very physical, um, but here it's more likely um, a kind of a form of rejection or the pain of, of seeing family members or friends walk away from Christ, uh, the pain of, of struggling in prayer for them, longing for fruit, uh, and seeing very little, or just there's a hardness to the gospel. Antagonism sometimes, kind of a dismissal, and that can be very painful. And so that's the backdrop to these verses. That's the context in which Paul is talking here. 
he, he, he's talking in the backdrop of his suffering. And there's two things he talks about in these verses. First of all, his ministry and his message. If, you want, if you're taking notes and you want two headings, it's his ministry and his message. So the ministry that he's living and the message that he's proclaiming. And the two are intertwined in these verses. His message informs his ministry, and his ministry is like a demonstration of his message. Paul was consistent. If you looked at his life and his ministry, you could tell what his message was. Or if you listened to the message he was proclaiming, there was a life and a ministry that went along with that, that was consistent with it. So first of all, and particularly in verse 24 and 25, Let's think together about this ministry or this life that he's living. And he, he begins, you know, really quite shockingly in verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. I wonder if you've, have you ever visited um, the Skellig Islands um, off, off the coast of Kerry? Um, I was there a few years ago. Skellig Michael. Um, of course, it's famous now for Star Wars, but it had a whole history before Star Wars. Um, it's about 11 kilometers off the Kerry coast. Um, it's just basically a steep lump of rock rising out of the sea. And perched on the top in one of the few areas that's flat, there's a little monastery, beehive huts made of stone and slate. Dates back to about the 6th or the 7th century. So about one or 200 years after Christianity arrived in this country. Can you imagine life there? cut off from the mainland, buffeted by storms, wind, rain, freezing cold winters, very little protection, and just a little group of monks in that monastery. Disciples of Jesus committed to a life of prayer and study and solitude. And when I think about them, I think how soft I am. My study is in, 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 in the back garden. I have a brick-built uh, shed, um, and I have a wood-burning stove in there. Um, and so in the wintertime, the wood-burning stove is going, um, and it's pretty toasty, though my feet get freezing. They're like blocks of ice, my feet. But I think how soft I am sometimes. I'm, I'm involved in, in, in the preacher's conference in January. Um, I know many of you have been to that. Uh, and we stay in, in a hotel in Gori. It's, it's really luxurious, nice hotel. Um, and you always have the option to, to pay a little bit more and you get a single room uh, coming to the conference. And that means no one in the room with you snoring, basically. And I always go for the single room option, always. And I, rem I remember the last time at the conference thinking to myself, you know, I really should bring my own pillow. I'd have such a good night's sleep if I brought my own pillow to this conference. I mean, maybe you're different. Maybe you're different. I don't know. But I lean in to comfort and ease. That's my default. My body tells me that's where life is. And so when I read these words of Paul, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. It kind of jars with my experience sometimes. And I struggle to know what to do with these verses. Of course, there's other verses in the New Testament like that, aren't there? Romans 5, verse 2, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Or James 1, 
Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And what emerges all through the New Testament is sometimes it feels like a very different attitude towards suffering. Less of a kind of leaning into comfort and ease and more almost of, of a leaning into to suffering and discomfort and inconvenience. Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 1 verse 29, he says, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. He says, it's been granted to you. You're allowed to. You've been included amongst those who get to suffer for Christ. Yay. Just imagine the Philippines receiving that. It's our privilege. Really? And what you find in the Gospels is not really that different. I mean, Jesus' teaching is no different. He's constantly reminding the disciples that following him, being a disciple, it always involves both, both, both good news and suffering. On the one hand, it's, it's the best of news. It's eternal life. It's fullness of life. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that you may have life and life in its fullness. And there's, there's, there's those promises of, of joy and peace and contentment and fulfillment. But then on the other hand, he speaks a lot about suffering and persecution and hardships and difficulties. Mark 8, verse 34, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And in the Beatitudes in Matthew, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So both good news and suffering. And the challenge has always been to follow Jesus, to to walk the walk and keep in mind and factor in both. And our tendency, I think, is to lean into the, the, the peace and joy and contentment and fulfillment as the norm, as what's expected, and then to, to just pray away the suffering and persecution and hardships as unwelcome, unexpected interruptions. And yet here, Paul seems to live them both. I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. I have joy, I have peace in the midst of hardship, he's saying. And you remember, you just read through Acts and you see the things that happened to him in Acts 14 at Lystra, where he was stoned and dragged outside of the city and left for dead, it says. So the crowd looked at him and said, job done. We can leave him, he's dead. I mean, how badly was he injured? And then he gets up and he walks back into to Lystra. Last summer, we were in Italy um, and we visited Rome. Um, and I finally got to, to find, I've looked for it a few times I was there, the, the Mamertine prison. It's a really small little prison just at the end of the forum in, in the historic part of Rome. And it's the place that held the high profile prisoners in Roman times before they were brought to their death and their execution. And tradition says that's where Paul was held before he was executed. And it's it's literally, it's just a pit in the ground. There's there's a little church has been built on top of it. And you go down a few winding stairs and it's just a pit with bare walls um, and and, and a small place. 
and it's still intact in a sense. And I stood there and thought, wow, this is where Paul was, most likely, the night before he was brought out and beheaded just outside of Rome in AD 60. He says, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul saw his sufferings as a continuation of Christ's sufferings. What did he mean by that? Well, first of all, what he can't have meant, so, so he can't have meant that, that there was anything lacking or deficient in Christ's sufferings for our sins, in the atonement, and we've come through Easter, and you, you remember where Jesus on the cross cries out, it is finished, it is accomplished, the price has been paid, it's complete, God's wrath has been satisfied, sin has been atoned for, that's done, that's finished. So what was he talking about? What did he mean? What, what is he adding to? Well, there is a suffering that's, that's part and parcel of the presentation of Christ's work to every person. As the gospel goes out, as the message of forgiveness goes out through Jesus, there is a suffering that accompanies that. And Christ continues to suffer, in a sense, in and through his church. I mean, that, that's why Paul, you remember outside of Damascus, when he was knocked off his horse, um, and he was, he was arriving in Damascus with the letters uh, to persecute the Christians in that city. And you remember what he cried out? He said, who are you, Lord? And the answer that came back was, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Christ's suffering was continuing. Not his atoning work, but his suffering, the suffering associated with the role of bringing his finished work to individuals. John Piper tells the story of, of an Indian evangelist um, who was, he was a new believer um, and he was keen to, to tell the gospel and share the gospel in villages around his area. Um, and on one occasion, he traveled for a whole day, uh, a really difficult journey, um, and he made it to this village late in the day. He decided to begin uh, sharing and preaching, and a crowd gathered, and he began to explain the gospel to them. But they rejected, they scoffed at him, uh, they made fun of him, and he was tired, he was discouraged, and so he left. And just outside the village, uh, there, was, there was a large tree, and, and he sat down at the tree, and he lay down there, and he fell asleep. A number of hours later, um, he woke up, and he was startled to see the whole village had gathered around him and surrounded him. And one of the leaders approached him, and his immediate thought was, oh, this, this is trouble. But the leader of the village said to him, he said, we came out to see you because someone noticed your bloodied feet. We decided you must be a holy man. You must care about us because you came so far and have feet like this. We're ready now to hear your message. See, what is lacking, what Paul said he filled up, what you and I fill up, is that personal, costly presentation of Jesus' work on the cross. A costly presentation of the gospel to those for whom he died. And none of that is wasted. None of that is forgotten. What it costs you uh, to be bold, to speak up, um, when 
you'd prefer to stay silent when that would be the easy or the comfortable route. It's of deep, deep value. And Jesus sees it and he knows about it and it's never wasted. Well, that's the life and ministry that Paul is living that he tells us about in these verses. But then secondly, and more briefly, um, the message that he's proclaiming in verse 26 and 27. In verse 25, he, he tells them that, that he's a servant of the gospel, and then he summarizes his message. He summarizes the gospel from verse 26. He says, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the first thing he says is, it's, it's a mystery. Now, all around this area of Colossae at this time in the ancient world, there were what, what was called mystery religions or mystery cults. And the idea was that an individual was, was initiated um, by being told secret or hidden knowledge. And the appeal of these cults was that, that only the initiated, only a few knew the hidden knowledge. And it seems like the false teachers at Colossae, who were possibly in the church or, or just outside threatening the church, they were operating in a similar way. They were claiming that they had truths or that uh, you could experience these, you could have these spiritual experiences that were open to no one else, that you could be initiated into these mysteries known only by the mature. And Paul is kind of blowing all that out of the water. And he's saying, yes, it was a mystery, it was hidden, but now it's disclosed, he's saying. What was unknown has been revealed. P Peter makes a similar point um, in his letter, uh, 1 Peter 1 and verse 10. He looks back and he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. He was saying the prophets, they searched, they tried to make sense of what they were writing and what they were saying, but but for them, it, it, it was a bit of a fog. But Peter says, for us, the fog has lifted. The mystery has been revealed, even to you Gentiles. Paul says, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mystery, this gospel has been revealed. That God, the creator, all-powerful, the holy one, would cause all his fullness to dwell in the man Christ Jesus. That that man, both divine and human, would live and minister and be servant to all in the backwater of Galilee. And then he would invite men and women to come to him, to bow before him, to make him Lord. And then he would die the death of a criminal. But through his death, God would begin the process of reconciling all things to himself. You remember it was read in verse 20? Uh, reconciling to himself all things, whether things in, on earth or things in heaven, by peace through his blood shed on the cross. And that his spirit 
would dwell in individuals, forgiving our sins, reconciling us to God, showing us grace now and in the future glory. That's the mystery, Paul says, verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now we experience the grace, Christ in you, and then we will experience the glory. And what a glory awaits us. Listen to these words uh, from C.S. Lewis. He, he puts it brilliantly. Um, that, that sense of longing um, for the glory. Um, he says, Our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of mourning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday we shall get in. The hope of glory. So how is it that, that, that Paul can lean into suffering? Well, part of the answer is he sees this bigger picture. He has this clear vision in his mind of the future. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he has a clear sense of his own calling. Back in verse 25, he said, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me. You remember Paul's commissioning back in Acts 9? Um, when he came into Damascus, uh, Ananias looked after him. And God told Ananias to tell Paul, or he told Ananias, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That was Paul's commission, what he was going to do. And in a sense, that was behind him. Those were the words of God that were echoing in his ear. You are my chosen instrument and how much you must suffer for my name. Those words were behind him and ahead of him then was the hope of glory. And so that was what shaped his ministry and his message, living between those two realities. And so every time when it was painful to be obedient, he knew this is what God said it would be like. And so just as surely Ahead is the glory, and he rejoices, and he's full of joy. And so his sufferings reminded him of his calling, and his sufferings held within them that, that promise of where it was all heading, the glory. Well, what about us? It really shouldn't be all that different, should it? We, too, live in the overlap of the two worlds. We experience the pain and the brokenness of this world that's passing. But we also, we, we, we experience it differently. We experience it as those who have Christ within us, Christ dwelling in us. And so we can sense, and at times we get a foretaste or we get a glimpse of the new and the renewed and the reconciled world that's coming. And like Paul, we, we have our calling, our commissioning, if you like, from Christ 
Mark 8, verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. That's our calling. Now, it's not, it's not suffering just for the sake of suffering. It's not going out of our way to find suffering. I'm not advocating we all go back to Skellig Michael. But, but every time we have a choice, every time when, when it's painful to be obedient, when it costs something to be obedient, when it's a struggle to forgive someone who's wronged us, or, or it hurts our, our own pride to go and seek forgiveness from someone, or he calls us to speak up for him, and that costs you something. Or you're, you're trying to fight temptation when it would be so much, much easier to give in to the comfort and the ease. Or you're simply presented with an opportunity to die to yourself and your own needs and serve and care for a needy person. Then you remember, that's what he said it would be like. This is what he said would happen. This is our calling. And so just as surely <coughs> within that is the promise of the glory to come. And so in the midst of the difficulties and in the midst of the hardships, we too can rejoice as Paul could. It's about seeing the whole picture. It's about raising our eyes above the immediate, taking in the whole landscape taking in the whole of eternity. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these words in Colossians. I thank you for um, the fact that you have given us these promises. Promises that you will be with us. Promises of transformation. Promises of hope within us and glory. We thank you for that. Help us in the midst of whatever suffering or pain we may be experiencing as we seek to be followers of yours. Help us to hold on to these truths, to recognize that this is our calling, and also that ahead is glory. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing together. Musicians are going to come up again. Um, Christ our hope in life and death we're going to sing.